to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to disasters and business continuity and everything related to that. Uh, if you're like me and you've been in the business for a long time, there's one topic that comes up quite a bit. And uh, a lot of organizations and people in the industry always say that the most important component of any disaster, the most important thing to take care of is people. You know, that's the most important uh, resources that organizations have or communities. And it's always the main thing that everyone needs to take care of. However, when you look at plans that have been documented by organizations or communities or um, talk to people, you always get the same response, you know, getting people out of the business and first aid, um, you know, get, getting them out in the open, away from burning buildings and things like that. But I kind of wanted to go a little bit deeper than that. There's something more than just, you know, making sure that someone is away from a, a burning building or, you know, has, receives a Band-Aid when they've got caught or something. So I wanted to, to dig, dig a bit deeper and reached out. So today's guest is going to help us uh, quite a bit understand something on a more deeper level when it comes to people and disasters. Uh, he's a very renowned uh, uh, psychologist. And if you check his website at www. Uh, dot doc amate d-o-c-a-m-i-t-a-y dot com you'll find out that uh, he's kind of a celebrity you know he's been on uh, a lot of radio a lot of tv a lot of print uh, so i'd like to welcome to the show uh, dr oren amate welcome to the show doctor thank you alex it's a pleasure uh, so I, I did check out your website, and uh, you really have uh, spoken a lot to the media uh, about uh, these kinds of things, haven't you? Yeah, because, um, I mean, they like to reach out to, quote-unquote, experts, and I try to speak about these things in the language that I know, which is pretty plain, straightforward, no need for jargon. And, um, you know, I appreciate being able to put a normal, quote-unquote, face uh, to these issues rather than trying to be some egghead who tries to get all esoteric. <laughs> and, so. <laughs> Understand that. Uh, I'm glad to have you here. Um, can you kind of, uh, let's start off by, uh, can you give us a, a bit of uh, your background and your bio, what you do and things like that, and how you got to where you are today? All right, well, I am a clinical psychologist, as you mentioned, so I have a private practice, and I see between 15 and 30 patients a week, and I also do very many assessments for the courts and uh, Children's Aid Society or Child Protective Services as well. And I teach uh, a number of courses. I've taught 20 different courses over the years, about 170 times. Um, and it's, it runs the gamut of all different types of psychology courses, from intro psych to clinical psych to human sexuality, addictions, take your pick. So um, I have to keep on my toes to be, you know, kind of always present to, kn to know what the newest research says. I'm, a, I'm part of different listservs that uh, cater to these um, types of issues. 
And, you know, I do about three or four media interviews per week, and they are on a wide variety of topics. So that, too, um, forces me, and I, I enjoy it, to stay abreast of everything. I'm always, you know, looking at journals that we, uh, that we're, we have access to as psychologists or as instructors, uh, looking up, you know, reading the books uh, that are relevant to the themes. And, um, you know, I, I can't remember my, actually, I, I do remember my first interview. My first interview many years ago was on Alfred Kinsey when the movie with Liam Neeson came out, uh, maybe 10 years ago. And, uh, ever since then, it's just, you know, continued. People want to hear what I have to say for some reason, and I am not usually at a loss for words. This will be the first time I am, probably. Hmm. It'll be a disaster. Well, you, you, I'm, I'm sure you've got enough skill and knowledge and background to be able to uh, help us out on uh, all the questions that we've got and things we need to know here today, considering you have spoken to the media so many times. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have you here to help us out. Well, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Okay, so let's get started. My, my first uh, question or thing that I'm wondering is, when it comes to disasters, why do we all respond differently? You know, you'll see people who stand there and freeze and then the opposite spectrum where you'll see people running burning buildings. Why do we all have that different feeling on how to respond to disasters? As with most things, I would say it's a combination of nature and nurture. So we know for a fact uh, people are born differently. Some babies, you know, it's what we call temperament. Some babies have a very calm, easy to soothe uh, temperament. They can, you know, they, they don't say a peep. They sleep through the night and so on. Other kids are very high strung, uh, you know, so some are startled very easily. So that's the kind of the wiring that we bring into the world. And then our early environments will help shape how we react, you know, moving on through our life. So if there's a lot of chaos in our environment when we're young, uh, if our needs are not attended to and we don't get a sense of security, that seems to be so important to our DNA or our wiring, uh, you know, we will be more, I guess, or we'll react more adversely when disasters or any type of stress occurs, uh, if we don't have healthy models um, for how to deal with adversity. Um, and again, when I say adversity, it doesn't have to be a disaster. Any type of stressful thing, a child you know, falls down or doesn't do well in school, how do the people around us uh, react? Do they get angry? Uh, do they ignore us? Do they show us with a calm demeanor how to pick ourselves up? So, you know, those are kind of the early, uh, let's say, elements that can help determine how we're going to react. And then as we get older, uh, you know, you know, we, we, those, those early elements kind of feed into how we continue to respond. And, you know, most people don't really step back and reflect on themselves. And they're sort of set on a trajectory. And for people who either do take that moment of introspection, or I, I would hope many moments, or who've had, you know, certain experiences that force them to look at themselves or their world or the people around them in a different way, that can kind of shift either in a good or bad way how they are developing with respect to being able to deal with you know future disasters or adversity and it's funny you mentioned the, the burning building because one of my good friends uh has a brother who is a he's a true hero i, I you know he's always embarrassed so I, don't, I won't mention his name but he's a firefighter and he's been involved in some famous cases in toronto uh you know in one of the cases uh, he wasn't even on duty he saw a, a burning building. He literally turned the car around, drove in there. He was just coming home from something and literally evacuated everybody. And as he was walking out of the building, it collapsed behind him. 
And you know what? I, I, I just, it blows my mind. And you talk to him, you would have no idea just looking at him, speaking to him. There, he, he's so humble. There's no way that you can just look at somebody and say, aha, I know that person is going to be this way or that way. And his brother is the exact opposite. I'm not saying he's a coward, but he's very passive. He's very gentle. Um, and, you know, so two brothers raised in a similar environment, but such a different, you know, response to these things. So that that's interesting that you you brought up you know kind of how we're we're brought up. Is that why when some um, you know children fall or scrape their knee, you know our parents freak out sometimes because really I've seen parents do that, you know absolutely freak out, and others and just say oh you know it's it's nothing, don't worry about it, and the child never cries and just goes on. You know they, exactly. the child even responds based on how the parent is responding. Right, and that's so important because we are social animals, so as we're developing, especially from a young age, we understand ourselves and ourselves in relation to our environment, uh, main, or largely through the reactions and interactions of other people. And now if a, parent, if a kid falls and the parent ignores them, then the kid might scream even louder to get their attention, but if the parent reacts in a very calm way, then they are, you know, more likely to react, as you mentioned, they're kind of just dusting themselves off. And I'll tell you, I mean, I work with so many patients who, when we look at their background, we can see why they've developed, you know, a certain way, whether it's a very anxiety uh, or prone to anxiety uh, or very calm and so on. We, we see that in their parents. And so people say, aha, so this person's mother and her father and their uncle, you know, they all had anxiety, therefore it must be genetic or biologically derived. And it's like, not necessarily. If they had a lot of anxiety, they are creating an environment for the child to be raised in, and it's very likely that they too were raised in a similar environment. And that person's, you know, ancestors could have been raised in a similar environment. So, you know, I don't like, I, you know, people like to jump to one conclusion or the other, uh, whether it's biological or environmental. And as I said, it's usually a combination of both. Uh, and, and a lot of it is very subtle, like as we just said, like, you know, how people react to someone if they fall down. Other times, it's, it's directly driven into them. So if you have a parent who talks about, let's say, being a patriot or fighting for their country or saying this is how, you know, little boys and little men should be, you know, and so they're getting those messages directly as well. So it, it's a variety of uh, influences that will shape how we are likely to uh, react. And then when the actual situation occurs, all bets are off. If you asked 100 people, what would you do if, and you list five different disasters and they all give their answers, the vast majority of people have no clue. They say what they will do, and in reality, they act very differently. Why is that? Because that's kind of interesting, because I was just thinking that myself. You know, you'll get five different responses, you know, saying this is what I would do. And, you know, we all have those kind of conversations, you know, almost on a daily basis. Oh, what would you do if such and such? You know, and everyone goes, oh, this is what I would do if it was me. But then when an event occurs, it's completely different. How, how, why is that? Why, why, why can we sometimes say this is what we're going to do, you know, how I'll respond, but yet our actions aren't? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, you know, we are creatures of narratives. We're storytellers. And so, so much of who we see as ourselves or who we think we are, are the stories that we tell whether it's, you know, literally directly, you know, I'm this kind of person, or, you know, how other people talk about us, um, how we relate to others. So the, the narratives that we create are not necessarily based on reality. It's a reality that we believe is real, 
but it's not necessarily accurate. So, um, so when we give our answers to how would we react, it's based on that narrative versus, well, how often have you been, you know, in, in the middle of a burning building or seeing a mugging happening right, happening right in front of your eyes? So that's one of the big reasons. We, you know, again, we think we know who we are, but we really don't. Uh, and the other reason is um, is that we. As social animals, we will usually react, or many of us will react, based on how others around us react. And so let's say, for example, there is a mugging, and everybody whips out their cell phones to record it, which is sadly, you know, it's a, it's a sad indictment mm-hmm. of our society these days, right? Um, yes. And a lot of other people will whip it out. If people turn a blind eye, people will turn a blind eye. If one person rushes forward, you will see a group of other people rushing forward to help as well. So, you know, and we can't predict you know, who's going to be the major influence at that time uh, that that will determine how other people react. So that's another reason we don't know how people are going to react, because we don't know how that one leader, so to speak, will react. And, and I guess I've kind of experienced that myself, uh, you know, being in business continuity and disaster planning, when we have fire drills, you know, that's always kind of a good indication of what would happen in a real situation, because half the people get up and head straight to the um, emergency doors, listening to the directions of the fire wardens, and you get this other group of people who just sit there. Ah, who cares? You know, don't worry about it. Or they, ju- you know, just say it's nothing. Don't worry about it. You know, it's completely opposite spectrums. You know, and if I'm sure that if it was a real situation, we'd end up with with panic. Right. And, you know, and sadly, that's how many people do react. It is panic. Um, I mean, the only way to really counter that in the average person is what you just described, which is having training over and over and over. Um, and even then, you know, it, first of all, if it's always just kind of like a drill, like, oh, the alarm's going off, it's three o'clock on Friday, we know it's going to go off, that's different. If it's, you know, um, kind of uh, increasing in its, in its realism, if uh, it's, it's spontaneous, people aren't prepared, and you kind of build toward this response where people say, okay, you know, it becomes almost like a habit. It's, an, it's a reflex almost, then you have a better chance of being able to predict how they're going to react. But even in those situations, we do know even police officers, um, you know, soldiers, we know some of them will freeze in, in the battlefield uh, or, or whatever crisis they're dealing with. So we have to always be prepared for the unknown uh, because humans are mm-hmm. not that easy to predict. Is there, a, maybe this is a silly question, but is there a default response that most people just instantly go to? Because there's that, what, what's that expression, fight or flight? Yes, so is, well, is there, a, is there a default? Yeah, it's a very important question um, because everyone talks about the fight or flight, but you, I think, alluded to it earlier, which is the more common, which is freeze. That's what many people will do. Now, if there's a whole bunch of people uh, together and there's a disaster, then it's flight. All right, almost everybody's just uh, taking off. But if it's an individual, many times the evolutionarily driven reaction is to freeze. And if you think about it, um, if a, let's say there's a rabbit walking along and then it, you know, it smells something or hears something, it freezes. Its senses get heightened. It looks around. It's kind of scoping out its, um, you know, its environment and tries to say, okay, don't move. Don't want to be prey. And, you know, what's, what, what does my environment look like? What's the next best uh, action? So that freeze response, in theory, has adaptive value. But for humans, for whatever reason, in many cases, uh, it doesn't help us. Like, we just freeze, and then we don't take that next step of, which is, okay, what do I do next? Right. We just kind of stand there, and uh, you know, see it in the movies, too. <laughs> you know, right. you know, 
you know, it's a burning building. Why, why are you just standing there freaking out? Move, do something. <laughs> yeah, and you know, um, and that's something that um, I've worked with uh, quite a few people who've been in a number of traumas or disasters, and a huge part of the therapy to help them to either avoid or to recover from post-traumatic stress disorder is to help them you know, kind of accept how they reacted because it wasn't like that. how they would like to see themselves. They feel ashamed and many times they distort what actually happened. So they replay it in a way that they say, oh, I should have known this or why didn't I do that? And they beat themselves up and that sense of helplessness, which is key, especially with trauma, um, that's, that's all they remember and they feel so weak and they feel ashamed of it. So I try to help them realize, you know what, statistically speaking, guess what? You're average. Okay, I think that's a perfect spot to stop. I'm going to come back on that topic. Um, we'll be taking a break, and we're, today we're talking with Dr. Oren Amate, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Today we're talking with Dr. Oren Amate, and we're talking about, you know, our... Uh, how we respond to disasters and the things we need to look for and look out for. And just before we went away on a break, Dr. Amate, you started to 
uh, talk about some great uh, points there of how people uh, react to traumatic situations long term. You know, can you uh, expand on that a little bit more? You know, maybe um, when the actual situation occurs, a person uh, doesn't respond or does respond in a specific way, but long term, it has impacts on them. How, how so? So it's, it's really difficult to know exactly why certain people will re-experience the trauma over and over. There's a lot of theories, um, there's research behind it, and there's a lot of ideology. So, uh, you know, we have to be careful. But, you know, from everything that I've seen uh, directly and also through the research, um, it seems that, first of all, women are more likely for whatever reason, this is not being sexist, I'm looking at the stats, to experience uh, the trauma. They say that if you don't get help relatively quickly to be able to discuss what happened, uh, you, you develop or you increase your chances of developing post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD because in that uh, gap, so to speak, you have more opportunity to replay the experience in a way that makes you feel more shameful. Uh, it makes you remember the aspects of the experience where you felt totally helpless. And that feeling of helplessness is so important because uh, for whatever reason, that seems to be like an underlying um, issue where uh, the, the sense of helplessness and total hopelessness, um, complete fear and terror, uh, that kind of gets carried on. And when people replay the experience, not just thinking about it, it's not just a bad memory, but their whole body goes into uh, a reliving or re-experiencing of the original trauma. And, uh, and again, unfortunately, what they are re-experiencing is not necessarily the real event as it played out. We know, with all the technology we have today, we know people's memories are not veridical. They're not perfect replications of what really happened. So the more that, or every time we think about something that happened, every time we try to access our memory, we're actually creating a new memory or a memory trace. So the person keeps playing it over and over. They, they think that they've done something terrible. They, they second guess themselves. Um, you know, I should have done that. Why did I come to work this day? Uh, you know, things like that. And if it's a disaster, there can also be survivor guilt, which is why did I survive when all of my colleagues got on the same floor got wiped out or something like that. And sadly, they, because they're blaming themselves so much or they're feeling so much guilt and shame, uh, they, it, it just seems so hard to be able to move forward because shame is a very important human emotion. It helps keep us on the right path if, 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 um, if it played out properly. Uh, it's the, um, let's say, neurotic shame or the uh, unhealthy guilt that trips us up. And when you tie that together with terror, the terror that goes along with PTSD. It's a really difficult combination to, to combat. And people can, you know, continue to re-experience this trauma years later. And once again, it's not as if they're, you know, necessarily re-experiencing accurate uh, retelling of what happened to them. It can get worse and worse each time. They, their role seems even, you know, more terrible, pathetic, shameful, or whatever. So that's, you know, sad. And, um, you know, the other flip side of that, though, is I'm just going to go on a bit of a tangent but it's related sure okay is that um you know understanding the need to kind of try to combat the false recreation of a memory uh quote-unquote experts determined years ago and they were wrong the research shows this that when a disaster does happen so let's say a school shooting what we see is these teams of counselors or therapists come swooping down to the place 
And they try to give the people counseling right then and there, because the theory being that if they can talk about it right now, then they won't have a chance to distort their experience and create the potential for PTSD. But the problem with that is you're forcing people to talk about something that, A, they may not be ready to talk about at the time, B, with people they don't know, they don't trust, maybe they just want to go home, maybe they want to you know, be alone, maybe they want to talk to their mother or father, whoever, you know, uh, but you're forcing them to speak with strangers, and C, uh, many of these people, if left alone, might not have played it out in their mind as this terrible trauma that they felt helpless in, and now suddenly being told, you must talk to a therapist, and, you have to, and they start asking these questions, maybe they are you know, unwittingly retelling the story in a way that makes them more susceptible to trauma afterwards. And, you know, the sad thing is the research shows, as I said, that this is not an effective way of dealing with such disasters, yet policy or ideology trumps science in many cases, and they still use this approach. Interesting. Because is that why, um, uh, I, I guess, people from 9-11 and soldiers coming back from uh, you know, hot spots in, on the globe or, or the war and some uh, police officers and uh, you even alluded it to, you know, firefighters. Is that why they sometimes have um, uh, experiences, you know, pro- after, you know, they come back or after an event, you know, either right away or, um, you know, further down the road? You know, is that, is that why they ex- experience, um, uh, what is it, PTSD so much? Yeah, I mean, A, they are exposed on multiple occasions to the kinds of traumas or disasters that most of us we hope would never experience even once in our life. So even the strongest person can reach a breaking point. And B, unlike the average person, they have been told the narrative they've created is that you are the hero. If you're a first responder or a soldier, that's your job. Get in, get out, take care of the problem, save the people or help the people around you. And, you know, so if they don't live up to that expectation. Again, whether it's real or not, you know, you know again, many times they, they replay the, the story in a way that's not accurate. Uh, that can do so much damage to their psyche because it just totally uh, turns upside down or turns on its head the image that they've built for themselves. And uh, many first responders or soldiers have a history of that in their family. So it's not just the narrative they've created. You know, they're, they're living up to the grandfather who served in World War One, right, or the, you know, the long line of police officers in the family who, you know, who either died heroically or were known for their valor, etc. So it, it's so much pressure on the person. And once again, it goes back to that shame that I couldn't live up to this person that I need to be, that I believe I, I want to be, and that others expect of me or they think they expect of them. So yes, um, they often are uh, susceptible to such uh, traumas and, and the PTSD that comes along with it. And sadly, because in a lot of jurisdictions, there is both A, a culture of machoism, so or, or machismo, so you don't talk about it and you know just suck it up, and um, and be not enough uh, proper care because the resources aren't there. They should they should be the ones with the greatest insurance plans. I'm not sure in the states, but in Canada, uh, there are many who are just left you know stranded, so they don't get the help that they need. So unfortunately, they do what many people would do to block out such terrible memories, which is self medicate through drugs and alcohol, um, and that's, you know, or other self-destructive behaviors. And obviously that's not healthy. So that can happen to, um, because they, the firefighters and the soldiers and the police, they're all the, the people that are there to help and, and protect, you know, people that are in traumatic situations. 
why is it that those that are directly impacted by disasters, you know, if I'm the one fleeing a burning building or my office was, you know, uh, bombed or had anthrax delivered, how do I end up on that same path with PTSD then? Because one, one side's the helper, you know, helping the those that are impacted. And on the other side, you have those that are directly impacted, you know, being helped, but you end up on the same path, you know, with PTSD. Right. How does because, that happen? Yeah, because, um, as I mentioned, with the, it's, you know, again, part of it's false narrative that they might create or the shame, but the other one is, the key point is the helplessness. It's, we're being brought potentially face to face with our own mortality. And humans, I mean, we're the only animals uh, that understand that we're going to die. You know, we have that sense. And so much of, without even knowing it, so much of our psyche is devoted to kind of keeping that thought away. Um, I mean, if you look at little children, uh, every kid's different. I think I was maybe four or five years old when I realized that, you know, I'm, we're on this planet for a limited time. And I remember for weeks on end, I'd be looking at all these people, and every time they were over a certain age, as a kid, so what do I know, maybe 30 or 40, I thought, how can you be smiling? Don't you know you're going to die soon? You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's an understanding that we have that um, is in of itself kind of tra- traumatic. Like, we're here, we're gone. So, you know, so when we, we are brought face-to-face with that, and again, it's done in a way where we felt helpless. That's just scary because it kind of lets us know, you know what? We thought that maybe we're going to be around to have great-grandchildren and retire and do this or that, but hey, everything can be snuffed out in a microsecond, and that's terrifying for people and it kind of it just short sort of shatters the wall that we unconsciously erect between our knowledge of our you know impending doom and you know and how we go about with our daily lives when that wall gets shattered it's hard for some people to ever you know re-erect it it's interesting you brought up that point when you were four years old i was uh, uh five or six and i remember being at my grandmother's funeral um when we still lived in england and, you know, coming to terms with knowing that, you know, I'm never going to see grandma again. This is it. This is this is death. You know, and being at such a young age, I had some of the thought, same thoughts that you just mentioned, you know, as a kid. So and, and I've got some young nieces right now. Um, when my uh, last dog, Seven, passed away, they grasped it as well, you know, at such a young age to know that, you know, death is death. You're not going to see it again, no matter how you flower it. You know, you can change the, the words and make them all pretty, but, you know, death is death and there is an end. So it's interesting that you brought that point up. Right. And again, we, it's, we are unique in that sense that we understand, and even from a young age, that uh, there is an end to it, uh, to our existence. And, you know, that's why with religion or spirituality and so on, a part of it is trying to prepare for the end. And disasters, it comes at us out of the blue, and we're not prepared for it, and it just, you know, turns our worldview on its head. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So with organizations then, when it comes to, uh, you know, business interruption, major business interruptions, you know, like terrorist attacks or, or major fires or earthquakes, you know, what kind of things do organizations need to consider, you know, when it comes to their employers, employees then, knowing that, you know, you, you made a great point of counselors that show up right away and people aren't ready to talk yet, you know, um, haven't processed what's gone on, you know, and leaving things too long. What, what should um, employers and organizations you know, consider? You know, it, it's. 
Right. They have to consider, and I hate to sound too cynical, but that's what I do. Um, there are many people who would love to capitalize on others' misfortune, including disasters. So, you know, there are a bunch of Shylocks out there who will come in and say, this is what you need to do, and we are experts in the field. And, you know, and, and they're selling a program, and this program might work for 30% or 50 or 60% of the people. Um, and even if it's not with such, let's say, cynical um, motives, even if it's simply just a program or a way of doing things, we have to recognize that everybody is different. There's no one way, no one be all fit, you know, or one size fits all approach. So companies, organizations, managers, they have to be sensitive to the fact that, um, that what they believe might work best isn't necessarily going to be what everyone else needs. And there's, there should be a variety of options for the people and they have to be very sensitive to the person uh, each person's reactions and they also have to recognize that um the, the people who for example may seem like they, they're coping the best hey they're right back to work the very next day they're taking care of their accounts or whatever else we don't know what is beneath the mask some people just mask mm-hmm. it better Right. So they have to have open doors, basically. And, you know, not to not to keep you know, sending out an email every three minutes going, are you OK? Are you OK? Uh, but letting right. people know that there is a safe environment in which I, mean, I hope there's one in which they can talk with somebody, an expert. Okay, where they won't be judged, and but that they're not being forced to do it. You know, don't have a day of grieving where people have to attend or something like that. Uh, these can be good things, but again, who knows what that person really needs? Maybe that person does not want to see, uh, you know, the, the people who survived or the people who died or a commemoration and stuff like that. Maybe they need to be, uh, you know, a thousand miles away at, at their home country, uh, healing or whatever. So they, they just have to be flexible in their approach. That's the most important. Um, answer I can give to that question. That's interesting because I have been in situations where, um, you know, there have been uh, days of mourning, so to speak, at an organization or, um, you know, get together to remember an event. And some people, you know, were, were kind of chastised because they didn't want to attend that. It's like, no, I don't want to be a part of that. You know, I don't want to relive that. I don't want to go through that. You know, so it, it's it's interesting that, uh, you brought those sample uh, examples up um, because not everyone does feel the same way and responds the same way in the same time frames. And, you know, um, uh, some people heal on an individual basis while others need to be, you know, around others to, to be able to move forward. Exactly. And I get the question I get asked a lot is, um, how do you deal with someone who's going through grief, through loss, through the death of a loved one? And I say there's no one right way to do it. But there are a lot of bad ways. And I always give the exact same answer, similar to what I said to you, which is um, be attuned to the other person's needs. Uh, and all you have to do is let them know you're there for them in whatever capacity that you can be there for them, in whatever capacity they need you. Don't impose. Don't say, oh, yes, I need to take them out, or I know you need this or that, or you have to eat. Okay? These might all be great advice. This might all be great advice. But if you think about it, if someone's dealing with um, any kind of trauma or disaster, let's go back to the whole thing I keep saying about the helplessness. If they feel helpless and now somebody's imposing on them, saying, I'm bringing you food right now. I know you don't want to see me, but well, guess what? You're re-triggering mm-hmm. that sense of helplessness. I have no control over my environment. Even my friends are broaching, oh, sorry, are breaching my, my boundaries. You know, so right. again, it's, it's just ask the person what you can do for them and be prepared for the most common answer, which is, I don't know, or silence. And you know what? 
Maybe you'll get an answer later on. Don't push. It's not about you. It's about them. Right. That's, that's good. So, so sometimes, you know, a, a non-response is actually a good response. Right. And as long as, the, look, as long, people, what people need to recognize is uh, research has shown this, that when it comes to uh, dealing with any type of adversity, especially depression, stress, loneliness, uh, all a person needs to feel is the sense that there's just at least one person out there who has their back. And, um, and it's only a sense of it. You don't have to prove it. As long as that person feels the other person has their back. And having their back can be something simple as they get me. They understand what I'm going through. They're not mm-hmm. trying to impose their you know, beliefs onto me. They're just there for me in whatever way I need. And if you can create that kind of an environment, that's really healthy. That's a good point. Uh, I think that's missing from many organization um, business continuity plans or response uh, activities uh, when you know something does occur. Uh, so I think that's a really good point. Um, and on that, we're going to take our second break. And we're talking with Dr. Oren Amate, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Dr. Oren Amate today. And uh, Doctor, uh, we were talking about uh, disasters and how uh, uh, people respond and, and behave. And I was wondering, how can we... Uh, prepare ourselves 
for traumatic events, uh, you know, uh, disasters, and we see things in the news every day. We experience all kinds of things throughout uh, our daily lives. But how can we uh, mentally prepare ourselves? And you, during the break, you brought up a couple of uh, interesting points: uh, cognitive. Uh, I forgot the other, the, the full name now. My my apologies. I forgot. Okay. Well, yes, cognitive but, dissonance but reduction. You, yes. So yes. can you you tell us about that, please? Sure. So this was um, back, I'm going to say, in the 50s uh, when a psychologist, Leon Festinger, uh, came up with this theory of cognitive dissonance. And I'll explain in a second, but one of the uh, areas that he, he applied it to was people's preparation for disaster or lack thereof. So basically, as you know, as it's, it's a North American phenomenon and other countries as well, but I'll stick with just North America. Uh, so the average North American wants to believe that they are uh, good and smart. Those are two things that we want to believe about ourselves. And so whenever we say or do things that might not be that smart or that good, we have these thoughts that don't match or they are dissonant. And it makes us feel very uncomfortable. That's where the cognitive dissonance comes in. And we can't deny that we said or did something or felt something or thought something. Uh, we can deny to other people, but not to ourselves. So if we say or do or think things that are not smart or not good, it makes us feel, wait a second, something's going wrong here because that's not in line with who I want to be or how I want to see myself. So we can't deny that we did it. So instead, we distort reality to the point that it's no longer that we did something stupid or bad. And I'll give you the example. So, um, and, and by the way, this is just a fancy way of saying uh, Freud's rationalization. We make up excuses for why we do or don't do things. So what, what Fessinger found was, uh, I think it was with the, um, the fault lines in, in California, they were looking at people living a certain distance from where they thought would be the epicenter of the next big earthquake. And earthquakes had been happening and they were being predicted. So they looked at people at three areas. One was right at the epicenter. Uh, I think it was near a university. It might have been near UCLA. Second one was, you know, let's say a few miles away. And third was quite far away where the people really wouldn't be that affected. And contrary to what we expected, they found that the people closest to the disaster area were the least prepared. Really? Let that sink in. Yeah, that was like, like no one would have predicted that. And I've asked thousands of people this question, literally thousands. No one ever predicts that. Um, and we think, okay, why would they be so unprepared? Well, the answer is, if they got prepared for something, if they got all the emergency supplies, etc., then they're basically acknowledging that they know that there is risk uh, of a disaster happening. And if they know ahead of time that there's risk of a disaster, in this case, uh, a, an earthquake near where they're living, then the question is, why are you still there? Do the smart thing and get the heck mm -hmm. out, <laughs> right? And so because they're not getting out and they thought, okay, if I get out, that's a lot of time. It's, I like being close to campus or whatever the, you know, the locations serve their purpose. And so they didn't want to do that. So they had to lie to themselves and basically say, nah, there's no disaster that's going to happen. So they fooled themselves. The people in the greatest risk of danger tricked themselves or lied to themselves thinking there wasn't going to be a problem. And the people farther away, you know, they were more likely to, you know, to prepare for it because no skin off their nose. If a disaster happens, it's, you know, it, they don't look foolish for having lived 10 miles away from where it is. So all that to say, when we think, when, when there could be a potential disaster that we could, potent, you know, maybe predict, a lot of people really aren't that prepared. And I think we saw that with Y2K as well, you know, 17 years ago. Oh, my God, it's mm -hmm. so long ago. It seemed like just last, just yesterday. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people, yesterday. 
<laughs> right? But think about that. I mean, some people, at first there was hysteria and everyone was stocking up on batteries. And then other people were thinking, wait a second, it, you know, like this, if it does go down, as people are saying, you know, it's the, it's the end. It's the end of times. And that was so overwhelming and that was scary for a lot of people. So they just kind of shut down. They said, nah, it's not a problem whatsoever. And they did nothing. Because by doing nothing, they're con- trying to convince themselves it's almost magical thinking. But they're saying, eh, there's not going to be any problem because I'm not getting prepared for it. It's backwards thinking, but that's how a lot of people react. So that's just a little twist I wanted to, to add to the narrative or to the story. Um, so that's what a lot of people end up doing. Now, what can people do? Uh, they can be realistic uh, because if you really want to think about it, the, you know, we're hurtling through space on this planet that you know has like what millions of other rocks and asteroids and other uh, debris out there that any one of them could just to totally obliterate the planet. And if we were to think like that, it would just make everybody to hide under their beds and just you know wait for the end. Okay, because it's a very scary thought and it's totally out of our hands. So. When we do prepare for disasters, I, I mention that only to say that's kind of the, the, the sort of the most extreme, literally the most extreme example of something that could go terribly wrong that we have absolutely nothing we can do to help ourselves for. Nothing. So, um, so what I'm saying is we need to recognize that our brains can do terrible things to us, uh, and the terrible thing would be becoming overly anxious. So if we let our mind kind of what we call catastrophize uh, and think of worst-case scenarios and always be fretting about something, uh, we're not going to be functioning well. And if anyone wants to simulate that, try walking around the house today, clench your hands, and if you can, clench your toes as well, and walk around for an hour. And see how you feel after an hour of just clenching your whole body up. Right? You'll drop to the floor. You're exhausted. And when you're anxious about things and you're focusing so much and you're so scared and, and, and worried about what could happen next, you're basically kind of setting your body into the same adrenaline rush and, and tension and it, it exhausts you. And then you can't think properly and you're not sleeping properly and you don't feel good. So we need to have a, a more moderate perspective, which is take care of the things that we can do. And every disaster, of course, is different. Um, you know, if you're living in a high crime area mm-hmm. and you believe that uh, and, and guns are allowed there and you believe that carrying a gun will help you, well, do the research. What are the stats? It will be, will, you know, will carrying a gun truly protect you or will it make you more likely to get shot in, a, in an event of a crime or something? Like, be rational about it. Don't let your emotions uh, override you and do your due diligence because every disaster, of course, requires a different response. But you have to keep everything contained. And that's why I give the asteroid example or the Earth example because um, we really need to just kind of stay localized and say, okay, for example, there's terrorists, um, uh, you know, halfway across the world. Thank God it's not here. Yes, there may be the occasional, um, uh, you know, terror attack somewhere, but it's still infrequent. Don't let these cognitive biases drive you. So many people have these what we call mental heuristics or mental shortcuts. So they hear of one attack, um, you know, and suddenly they think that it's going to happen all the time. No, it was a one-off. It was an anomaly. And all of this is, all of this preparation that I'm talking about, ironically, is not even real preparation. It's all mental preparation, right? It's ways to prevent Mm -hmm. yourself, right, from, from just allowing your mind to spin out of control. So that's, I think, the most important thing. And then the rest of it, again, the, the proper planning uh, and seeing what you can do. Like, have, like, for example, for a house, every family should have a fire plan. 
you know, that's, that's disaster prevention. Mm-hmm. That's the most common. Um, check your carbon monoxide. Like, and if you know that you're doing this and you're not, you're not obsessive over it, you're just practical and prudent about it, then that should help you, you know, kind of be at ease and say, you know what, everything's taken care of. I can go about the rest of my day. Yeah. So you, you, you have to find that happy medium between full-on panic and uh, anxiety attacks to doing nothing. You've got to find what suits best for you in the middle, you know, some, hopefully somewhere in the middle, you know, that's exactly, good. exactly. And what, what you can do is what do you have and what elements of control can you exert over the situation? Like having a fire plan or whatever, you can't prevent someone, you know, from committing arson to your house, but you can have a plan, you know? Uh, so that, that's it. It's the element of control and, you know, feeling it, it, to have control over your own personal self, like that's what we're talking about, the anxiety and everything, and over your mini environment, uh, those two together should give you a sense of, um, I don't know, well-being. Well, you actually have a great example there, you know, a fire plan, because uh, I'm at home here and I'm on the top two floors uh, of a, uh, a condo building, and I've got a, a, an escape plan myself, you know, I've got extra water, you know, I've got some food stores, you know, just in case something happens because I'm in Canada and, you know, we lose power in the, you know, in the winter, you know, and right now, <clears throat> as we're recording this, excuse me, we're minus 22 or something outside. So, <laughs> you know, um, we could lose our power. So, you know, my happy medium is, well, if power goes out, I've still got water, I've still got some food here. So, you know, what happens, happens. So, you know, that's what everyone needs needs to do, you know, not panic over it. Exactly. And, and I, I can't stress enough, I mean, because I just deal with so many people with, it doesn't have to be an anxiety disorder, but it can be certain levels of anxiety, which really just taxes the system and obsessing or ruminating over something. And again, it doesn't have to reach disorder uh, proportions uh, to have a negative impact on someone. So like what you just said, having just enough done, having flashlights with batteries, making sure they work, checking them once a week or something like that, not obsessively, not six times an hour, but you know, just occasionally, yeah. it just gives you a sense of, hey, you know what, if, it, if something happens, I'll be ready. Yeah, exactly. So okay. here's the, the last, in our last little uh, few minutes that we've got here, I, I'm wondering when these events happen, you know, and let's say, you know, uh, it could be anything, you know, a fire, a terrorist threat, a fire in my building, um, you know, an active shooting situation at work, anything like that. How do I, as someone who is adjusted, I'll, I'll use myself as an example, I'm adjusted, I feel fine, I got through the situation. How do I recognize that somebody else may not be adjusted, may be having problems? What do I need to, to keep an eye open for? What, what are the signs that someone is having problems? Uh, well, the first one would be immobility. They're kind of frozen. Okay, that's one. Um, the, the next is just that it's, it's um, what's the right word, uh, non, non-directive action. So they might be just kind of like uh, shaking or, or walking around in circles. I'm trying to think of a better word for that. But, you know, the, just, there's no um, aim to their action. Okay, uh, so those two are the biggest ones. I mean, the obvious one would be if someone's screaming or crying or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. But... You know, it's the person who, again, like I said, it's that lack of action. And if someone is, like, looking either really 
obviously panicky or just they're, they're looking kind of useless, for lack of a better word. What they need in that moment is a strong presence. Now, for some people, they kind of yell at them. They go, smarten up. Other people, it's just being calm and being there. But it can't just be calm, laid back, like, eh, don't worry about it. It's more like calm, but there's a sense of, let's say, controlled urgency. Because <laughs> in those situations, right, you're modeling for them how to react. And that's very important. So compose yourself. And the other thing is, uh, I think what everyone needs to do, we don't have time to go over it, but I would say Google it um, or YouTube it, diaphragmatic breathing, learning to breathe properly. It might sound silly, but I'm telling you, it's the number one thing I do with people to help them get through like bona fide panic attacks, uh, trauma, other things like that. Um, if you can learn to breathe through your diaphragm, not through your chest and shoulders, but through your diaphragm, uh, when these disasters hit, you will be that person who is functioning perfectly because your system is now reacting the way it should. Okay. So, so. is there any, any last comments you'd like? We've got... Uh... Uh, two minutes left. So, would you like to say anything closing when it comes to, you know, psychology and disasters? Any closing comments? Well, I, just to kind of reiterate um, the idea that you know, as much as we would like to think that we know how we would act um, or how people should act. That's not how it happens in most cases. So whether it's ourselves, we need to be able to give ourselves a bit of a break and realize we're not going to, most, most of us will not be the hero. We'll be lucky if we're not a hindrance. And when dealing with people who've gone through that, just recognize that they may not show it to you, but who knows how they are processing the experience. Uh, and the chances are they're processing it in a way that made it even worse than it already was. Uh, so don't, here it is, bottom line, here's for your listeners, don't give people too much credit. It. I've learned that as a psychologist. Okay, have a really low bar, and that way, you know, you're not going to miss out on things uh, that you know that you maybe could be uh, aware of, and you won't uh, have overly unrealistic expectations of yourself. And if you do that, you'll have a better chance of making it through a disaster, you know, more intact, psychologically speaking. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Amate. I really appreciate you being with us, and oh, to pleasure. everyone out there. Oh, great! I'm well. Uh, you know, you proved all those uh, things on your website that you've you've definitely talked about this before, <laughs> <laughs> and very well, I might add. Uh, so well, I'd like you. to uh, uh, thank you for being here, and to all our listeners again. If there is a topic you would like us to touch base on on the show, uh, or or have a specific guest on the show, please send me an email at info at uh, stone dash the dash sign road.com and we'll see about getting you on the show or finding someone to speak about your topic. Otherwise, thank you once again, Dr. Amate, please. If you have any questions uh, and you'd like to touch base with Dr. Amate, you can reach him through his website, www.docamitay.com. Other than that, thanks everyone for listening and stay prepared. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.